You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Episode 100, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun, informative format through expert analysis. And as you may have noticed, new theme music, new season, technically, as we reach 100 shows. And today we're just going to reflect on the 100 episodes. I will actually hand over the hosting duties to a special guest host, who you'll recognize right away. And I think today's going to encapsulate a lot of what we've learned in our journey through the first 100 episodes. I think if you haven't listened to all 100, this would be a great opportunity for you to get some insights, maybe some shows that maybe would be worth listening to that are back in the archives. All these things will be located, of course, at theparadox.com slash 100. Thank you so much for this journey. It's been a really amazing ride. I've had more listeners than I could ever have imagined. Thanks to you listening and sharing with your friends and colleagues and family. I'd like to thank all my patrons to the show who support the show financially, especially a new member, Brandon Cole. Thank you so much, Brandon. You'll be getting your free gift in the mail uh, for the next week or so. But I would encourage you, if you've not yet had an opportunity, please go to the podcast player of your choice, whatever one you use, whether it's Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcast Player, but leave a written review. Five stars would be great, but a written review gives people an idea what they're in for. And I think we do some really interesting things here. We, I think, honestly discuss about whether it's coronavirus or ethics or just the state of medicine and really introduce, I think, I hope, very hopeful, innovative people who are changing medicine and helping both physicians and patients alike. I intend to keep doing the show and to keep providing those people and ideas that are really changing the way we look at medicine. So I would also encourage you, if you have any ideas for shows or guests, please email me at theparadoxshow at protonmail.com. You can also go to the website and you can connect to me that way. That's also a great way to get show ideas, interact with me, and stay in touch. But without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest host, Dr. Marcy Larson, in our freewheeling discussion on the first 100 episodes of The Paradox, 
and my journey with you. Enjoy. Hello. As you may have already guessed, this is not Eric Larson, the normal host of The Paradox Show. This is Dr. Marcy Larson, the episode 100 host of The Paradox. I was coerced into being the host today in order to interview Eric to learn about kind of all you have taken in over the first 100 episodes. So welcome to the show, Eric, and welcome to me. Thanks for being uh, green to be the guest host today. <laughs> yeah. So why don't you start out by talking a little bit about what has kind of transpired over these first 100 episodes. When did this all start for you? Well, this began April 2018, obviously. Um, a lot has happened, both personally and um, per- at least throughout the show and sort of what we've learned and sort of what's gone on in the healthcare market. Uh, personally, I've obviously, if those who are longtime listeners know, back in uh, August of 2018, uh, we lost our son, Andy. Uh, you can go back and listen to that episode 25. Um, and uh, that has obviously transformed sort of the way I look at life, look at things. Since then, it was hard to sort of restart the show, uh, but I um, I decided that was as a legacy to Andy and probably as something just to do that is probably a good idea to, to carry forth. And so I've continued on for the last really probably 80 episodes after um, Andy passed away. And he really did love the fact that you did this podcast. He thought it was the coolest thing. He would always ask you and me if dad had gone viral yet that would be his constant question and the answer was always uh no and we don't really think dad's going to go viral with the paradox show but in in his mind you really had and that's why he thought it was so cool and I think that's a reason why you felt that you would have sort of let him down had you quit yeah no I think I had to I had to do it for him in some ways um and again it was actually a really good distraction so I think it served two purposes there for me. And I do enjoy it. I mean, I do enjoy reaching out the guests. I think um, when it, I learn a lot of stuff more than I had anticipated. And um, I must be strange for you to guest host this show since uh, you've probably now guest host more than you've listened to. I, I, I joke. I, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I still listen. <laughs> I, I am not a regular faithful listener, I do have to admit. But I do have to say I've listened to far more of your podcast than any other podcast. Okay. Well, right. And that's interesting because, of course, you have your own podcast. And, um, yeah, so it's been, a, it's been an interesting experience uh, going through this. And um, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm excited to, for, the next, for the next episodes. I think um, we're going to continue exploring things and learning more. And there's one thing I've learned (laughs) is that there's no end to how much stuff there is to learn more and better understand and new sort of issues arise or things I did not known about. And um, so it's a journey and it's been one that I've, that has been um, intellectually and emotionally helpful. Mm -hmm. Are there any particular guests that really stand out to you that you'd want to bring up today and kind of looking back? Yeah, you know, there are there are a number of guests I've had that I've really... And I, I would say what's interesting is pretty much every single guest I've ever had on, I've really enjoyed and wish I'd like been able to hang out with more, which I mm-hmm. thought was kind of... Um, which is surprising. I Not that I don't like people, but, but uh, you don't always think you get a good vibe for people. And I feel like 
really just about everybody I've talked to. It really would be someone I'd be interested in hanging out with. But um, the ones that have that stuck out to me, obviously, episode three, which is with um, my really good friend Justin Amash, you know, our family friends. I think you know he helped he helped me get through the thing with Andy, um, and so he's and so that episode, although now it seems really kind of dated as we talk about just for healthcare mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. That was back in April of 2018. Um, that was one that just as a guest, he was um, obviously one of my favorite guests. Uh, but other recent ones uh, with Randy Lovell, and I did not prep for the show at all, so I don't remember what episode number these are. But um, Ep- Randy Lovell, who's a physician here in town, it was um, he's a great guy, someone I've worked with ever since I've started practicing in Grand Rapids. And he's gone out on his own and started his own practice in a really different sort of model as an orthopedic hand surgeon. And I feel very much responsible for his success or failure since he sort of, I mean, I think it's something he probably would have done, but the things we talk about in the show of being innovative and working outside of what the usual sort of way the healthcare system runs, Mm -hmm. that has certainly been um, encouraging to him to, to try it. And so I've, nervously <laughs> been watching and seeing and I was asking when I see him I just saw him the other day and he's like, things are going well so it makes me feel better I'd feel terrible if things didn't um and uh you know I think David Graham who's a, a guy um a friend of mine and class former classmate from high school we really had lost touch outside of the Facebook post you know as your sort of typical Facebook things and he competent he listened to a couple of shows back that I made a mistake on that I later corrected um we started talking about COVID uh 19 SARS-CoV-2 um, and he's been a really good resource from uh, as far as as an infectious disease doc and it's been fun sort of getting touch of him and sort of his way of looking at the world I think has helped shape me and how I look at the progression of this pandemic and and I I think it's it's an, it, although I don't like thinking about it and talking about it you end up having to because you're consumed by it it's around you all the time and so it is an intellectual sort of dis- discussion or sort of puzzle to try and figure out what's going to happen next? Well, I think back to when you started and really everything had a very libertarian kind of slant to it. And it was very much all focused on the economics of medicine. And it really did change somewhat with the COVID-19 pandemic and that you started to focus a little bit more on some other areas too and have it not all based on the economics of medicine. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when it, I when I looked at the show that it started, it was going to be focusing on the economics and sort of the the real failed third-party third, par- third party system that we have in, in medicine so that, you know, you have an insurance company essentially is the middleman and it, it separates the people providing the care, the physicians versus the people receiving the care, which are the customers, which are the patients. And so it really distorts sort of all sorts of aspects of medicine from privacy to um, just the economics of it and the way people are treated. And uh, and then also to to discuss the problems with uh, with licensing and accreditation for physicians, and so those are sort of the things I just wanted people to be more aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you sort of get in sort of involved in medicine and start looking at problems, you realize there are far more problems that are not all economic. Some are, but there's certainly just kind of random things that you'll run into that are really concerning and I or very interesting um, questions. And so that's you know, when I talked to had the episode about what is is brain death really death and sort of, you know, redefining whether uh, people are, you know, what is what is that process? Is it ethical to harvest organs? Right. Because that's sort of the whole um, when that got redefined in the 70s. That was I mean, that's an interesting sort of ethical question. Also, uh, 
looking at the forced organ harvesting, I think, you know, when you look at the Chinese government, what they've done for years in executing people and taking their organs and selling them. I mean, these are like, these are perfectly related to medicine. I mean, there's certainly, mm -hmm. it happens in medicine, but they're not, they're not, you know, it's not U.S. based, that one especially. And um, so anyway, those are things that I just, you kind of stumble into. And then you realize when you have a platform that you have the opportunity to reach out to experts and find out more about it. I mean, ordinarily, I just might read an article somewhere about it and think, well, that's interesting or that's kind of ter terrible. Uh, but now I can talk to someone and actually learn a lot more in depth and sort of get a different perspective or get an increased breadth of information. So it has been helpful to me, and I, I assume it's been very helpful to people because the show continues to grow and get more popular through the years, which surprised me. I mean, that was not my expectation, certainly. <laughs> Well, I think back, too, to when you started covering or talking about mental health in physicians as well. So that was certainly something that you might not have thought about at the beginning, but I feel like is really, really important, you know, about mental health and suicidality among physicians and just trying to take care of yourself a little bit better. Yeah, and I think that's sort of many of these things that we see as problems in medicine, I mean, Everything in life is interconnected, and you know you can you can say, "Well, I'm going to focus on economics," but except if you're economics and you're basically focusing on human behavior and there in the world, so you can't just focus on money. Mm -hmm. uh, likewise, you can't just focus on, say, the electronic health records and say and just focus on that because what that does it has implications broadly into sort of how you practice or how you you know get along in life, and so. You'll find people who get super frustrated by electronic health records. They then become frustrated with HIPAA laws that actually are ways of, essentially it's a law to sell your health information to other third-party payers or third parties. Um, and so you suddenly realize that you're disempowered as a physician, also as a patient, you know, as far as getting the care you want. And so then you'll quickly find yourself having problems mentally with whatever it is. You feel that loss of empowerment, and then you start thinking about things the wrong way, which is, you know, we talk about physician wellness, suicide, and this depression, those sorts of things and that. And those all are related, right? You can't just talk about one. You can talk about an isolation, but essentially they're all in some way related to each other. And the finances as well. I mean, I've had a couple of shows on finances because there are people who are come out of school. They're a quarter million dollars in debt. They, the medicine's not what they expect it to be. They don't have the relationship with the patients that they had anticipated. And suddenly they find themselves feeling powerless and like they've made a mistake and trapped. And then mm -hmm. sometimes the only exit is that they, that you can perceive is one that's not a healthy one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, thinking back to the electronic medical record, I know personally our office, I think got our EHR in about 2008. And I remember the push that we all had to go to electronic medical record, and it was going to make our lives so much easier. You are going to be able to spend so much more time with patients now that you're going electronic medical record instead of doing all this handwriting with the charts. And it was really a push that we would be more efficient, quicker, and be able to spend more time with our patients. And it's funny because I recently just saw another advertisement saying, you know, now physicians spend 75 to 80% of their time in front of a computer and you don't really look at the patient and you've lost the relationship with the patient. And it's, I just, it just hit me that 12 years ago they were saying that this was going to solve all of our problems and now the newest things are 
this is creating such a problem because you really don't look at your patient anymore, which I think is true. I mean, that computer screen between me and my patient is cumbersome and it's hard. So things just change, you know, things that you think will be solutions end up not being solutions and just creating new problems. Yeah, well, I mean, that's no question. There are things, and we've had a, you know, the electronic record is sort of entered anesthesia too. It doesn't really affect us in the same sense. I mean, I, I spent time, honestly, staring at a screen no matter whether. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm here to look at the patient, look at a screen, what the vital signs are. So it didn't change much except what I have to record. Um, and, you know, there's, it, it becomes more cumbersome finding information on patients oftentimes. I mean, in some ways it's more efficient. Uh, but other ways, the paper record was easy because you could look through a an HMP and find the three things that you need to know as an anesthesiologist. Um, you don't need to know what their skin looked like in their skin exam, for instance, right? But mm-hmm. you know, when you're trying to sift through the entire HMP, there's a lot of information that is extraneous. I don't doesn't really matter to me whether the patient wears a seatbelt or not. Yet that'll be in that HMP along with 400 other things that are extraneous, and so. It makes it less efficient for us to get through things. But uh, the whole thing with the, the screen and recharting, I mean, it's always been a thing with medicine, right? You'd, and you'd know there, there were physicians you probably worked with and rotated with who would almost do their dictation in the room. They'd sort of like re- talk to the patient and sort of give their assessment, the plan, while they're dictating the plan, which I thought was kind of strange. But it yeah. was if, is it efficient. Uh, and, you know, at least the patient knew what was going in the chart, I guess, in that sense. I, I think it was just different. Uh, and then there are other people who would chart like a week later. And I'm like, I don't know how you'd remember anything from an exam a week ago. Like mm-hmm. you, the best you could do is maybe remember what the diagnosis was or that it was, you know, in pediatrics, a well child, that totally well. There's nothing unusual about. Um, it's funny that you say that because now I, I have to, when patients transfer in, you know, I've recently gotten some transfers in from other states. And of course it comes with this yeah, three quarters of an inch thick chart <laughs> And the kids like two and a half, right? And the other day I looked through two stacks because it was so big that it couldn't be paper clipped in one stack. So it was in two, right? And so I looked through the entire thing. I don't know how long it takes me. And I literally wrote down four words on the front of the chart that I wanted my nurse to put in our electronic medical record because nothing else mattered. Yeah. I mean, everything else was fine. And it just is... You know, had I gotten that years ago in a paper chart, it would have been much, much more efficient. I would have been able to just get the couple things like this kid has a little bit of speech delay, which is really all it was, was a little yeah. bit of speech delay, <laughs> and everything else is fine, but it took a long time to figure that out. Yeah, I think that's the, I mean, when it, you look at the efficiency of getting through things, that has been the biggest problem, right? That, that there's so much, um, well, I think, you know, you have a system that's designed with the wrong, pa- the wrong customer in mind right and that's and that's been always the problem the u.s health right the, the customer is not the patient the it's not even the doctor the customer is the insurance company it is insurance for company. sure and yeah. and when you look at our billing it is far more efficient we don't even need i mean we don't really need as many people in our billing department as we used to have we didn't let anybody go we kind of just gave them new jobs and did not rehire someone when they left but it is it's just I remember us getting a new computer system and our billing supervisor looking at us and saying, what am I supposed to do now? Yeah. Because like her whole job was being automated. So that part of the electronic medical record is far more efficient and that takes far less time, but it does go to show that that's the true consumer, the true customer 
that electronic medical records are looking to please is the insurance company. Yeah, and, not the physician or the patient. Right, and and I would say the only you could say the other the other customer is probably the regulatory body, whether it's the government, JCO, whatever it might be, because there are a lot of things that are in that chart that are not billing related, but they're related to. Did you ask the patient if they wear a seatbelt? Did you ask them if they, you know, have a firearm in their arm? Or did you ask them if they smoke? Or whatever it is, these preventative measures that are either required by the insurance companies or they're for data collection for CMS reasons. And so there's a lot. So that's why you can get a chart from a for a two and a half year old that's you know 80, 80 pages, a hundred pages long of someone who is basically totally healthy, mm-hmm. right? Like no one who's two and a half who has trouble talking should have a chart that long. It doesn't make any sense at all. No. Uh, and, you know, that's somebody who's healthy. You can imagine if this kid had congenital heart disease and had been in the hospital oh. four times, it would have been a thousand pages. And you would, and for you, your ability to try and find it, you'd basically just go to HMPs and just look and see what someone had written on the discharge summaries or the admission chart. Because you wouldn't have time to go through and look at all the exams and tests and CAT, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so it, it's, and that's what's been interesting about talking to direct primary care docs too, which I started the show as well. I think that was part of, just because they are, innovative and their sort of different way of practicing medicine and they're sort of in many ways taking a lot of the things that we don't like about medicine just throwing them away and saying i'm just going to do the stuff i want at pretty significant risk financially and to you know from professionally to themselves uh and and they have computer records as well but they it, it feels very different and at least talking to them you know their billing is like it makes sure that the people pay their bill on time or you know makes it mm-hmm. sure that it sends out automatically or that they came for this and, you know, it's all, it is a monthly charge usually, or you enter in what medicines you got, or maybe a, a laboratory work and it adds those little charges in, but it's not like this super complicated. It's a level two visit, level three visit. I'm not in primary care. I don't even understand how that works. I just know there are different, <laughs> different CPT codes for things and, um, cause we have them in surgery, but you have them for yeah. office visits. And that's where the computer system is designed to, Oh, you didn't ask enough social history questions or family uh-huh. history questions. Therefore, it doesn't qualify for level three or you didn't spend enough time. But then you also have things that I think are totally arbitrary, which really bothers me. It, I'm not affected by an, an anesthesia as much, but that you have, you could be someone who's super thorough and goes through everything and has a, a you know, massive history all the time and do what's, every, I mean, legal, what would be legally a level five visit. But if you suddenly start claiming you have level five visits all the time yeah. at, a, at a percentage that is outside the norm, then you're going to get at best audited, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or you're going to be penalized or fined. And, uh, you know, that's, and then what happens, of course, is so many people copy and paste previous records. And then in order to qualify for the level three, level four visit, even though they only spend five minutes with the patient, right? But, you know, you filled out a survey and you did all the answer these questions. And so it looks like they did far more than they did. And uh-huh. for billing standpoint, uh, oh, for sure. We're always having conversations about what level we can bill based on what we did. And I, some of them, I just have a hard time. I just feel like I, this took me no time to do this. I just can't bill that high. And yet then I'm kind of told to just follow along, you know, it, in some ways, well, it makes me think back to when you started the show. When you started the show, I was also um, a co-medical director for a physician organization of pediatric practices, and I did insurance company negotiations for these nine independent pediatric practices. I helped do that. I met with insurance companies a few times a month, and after Andy died, it just all felt so stupid. <laughs> 
It just did. It just felt like this is not important. This is not what life should be like. This is not what I want to be a physician to do. Because for a little while, it was extremely painful for me to see patients. So I did more administrative work. That's all I was working was doing was administrative work. And I just couldn't. I hit a point in time where I was like, this is ridiculous. This is not why I went to medical school. I can't keep just meeting with these insurance companies, even though they were very nice people I was meeting with, sure. you know, yeah, right. and I was trying to fight to get more money for pediatrics, which overall pediatricians don't make very much money. I mean, the joke in our family has always been you, you can finish the, Oh, line. I bring home the bacon, you bring home the bacon bits. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Cause the pediatrics is just the bacon bits, but I just couldn't do that anymore. I just had to get out of that and not think about meeting the certain benchmarks and trying to set which benchmarks we were going to have to meet to get our little bonus at the end of the year and things like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's one of those things that's, it's super important to do, to do those, the administrative work yes. because someone has to do that. Someone has to negotiate the things and fight for the 10 cents per patient uplift or whatever it is, you know? Um, and those are, those are things that have to be done. They're really annoying and frustrating. And I just yeah, couldn't do them personally, yeah, but you're right. right. They still did have to be done, and I certainly do appreciate the people that are doing it in my place now yeah. or our office. But I mean, I think if there's – obviously, so it doesn't need to be said probably, but if when you lose a child to, some, to something, I mean, you enter a club that you didn't want to ever be a part of, uh, but it certainly changes the way you look at life and um, the way you, whatever it is you're doing, I imagine. I mean, I'm only medicine, so I can only tell you how it affects me and how I practice medicine. But it totally changed your outlook and priorities, obviously. Um, you know, what's important with your family, what's, what you'd be worried about that you, you know, that you weren't before or vice versa. And it's made me far more empathetic. Um, I'm much more... Um, compassionate to, to patients. Um, I mean, I always thought it was pretty good before, but they're, um, they're diff- definitely different things I've discussed with patients I never did before. Like if they mention they lost someone recently, I will ask them about them and talk to them about them. And we, and you know, commiserate, I lost my son recently. And so we'll kind of share a moment, so to speak, you know, mm-hmm. as I'm wheeling back to the OR, <laughs> which I think is helpful. I think, I mean, it's, it's never, I can, I'm pretty good at judging whether someone's uncomfortable talking about something, and so I'll just certainly stop. But most people want to talk about those things for a little bit. Um, you know, oftentimes you give them for Zed, so they may not remember anyway. But um, I'm always talking about I'm always talking about patients, but I'm I'm much more um, I just more forgiving. I think of people just being jerks or for being just grouchy or whatever mm-hmm. it is because you know they're going through a tough time, whether it's just because they're having a surgery and they don't want to be there uh, or whatever. And so <clears throat> it has changed. And it's and the the biggest thing too is just changed my life. There are things about life or about medicine that bothered me a lot more than they do now. Now mm-hmm. I just don't care as much. I'm like, that's fine, whatever. I at some point you just have to recognize what you can control, what you can't, and that's you know, that's something that you definitely sort of rethink things once you've had something like this happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, you just don't don't sweat the small stuff a little bit, right? Some of those things that used to bug you just don't anymore. And some friends that I have that get bothered by things that used to bother me, like, I don't even know that I want to talk to you about this anymore because I just, it just doesn't matter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what do you think about how 
things really have changed, I would say, with your show recently with this COVID-19. What do you think about that? And how have you been able to kind of approach that in a different way than others? When I was talking to um, uh, Dr. Francis from the UK after off air, we were, he has a YouTube channel called Midlife Crisis, which is really great. And I recommend anyone uh, listen to the show or watch it on YouTube. It's really funny and um, very informative too. But uh, he was talking about the whole thing with COVID too, because you know he has a medical show. And before that, he's just doing general stuff on medicine, whether it's he's a cardiologist, so he did things in like heart health and, you know, can you kill yourself if you're too, in too good a shape, for instance, like can you go to heart failure? Um, but then after COVID, of course, people want to know what he thinks about things. And mm-hmm. so he, he kind of was doing that. And not surprisingly, those have the biggest response. Like, you know, people are super interested in this right now. People usually aren't interested in medicine, but they are really interested now in the middle of a pandemic, obviously, mm-hmm. right? Like people are probably way more interested in, the, in what impeachment means once there's an impeachment trial going on versus when there's not. So anyway, so he was, he'd say it, he kind of had a, a point where he doesn't really want to talk about it all the time because mm-hmm. there's more stuff going on than that and there's more that interests him. And I feel the same way. I feel like I, I do like to try and figure out the puzzle and try and guess where we're going and sort of how this thing's working and why it's so weird. And, you know, you're far more um, knowledgeable about infectious diseases and vaccinations and those sorts of things. I'm dumb about most of that stuff as an anesthesiologist because we just don't, you know, you just don't, I give preoperative antibiotics and that's pretty much like the most extent of my infectious disease training. Um, I mean, outside of medical school or the month I did in, as resident in, in the infectious in internal medicine or something. So, um, so it's, for me, it's been a big learning process about sort of learning about the vaccines and how they all work. And so that's been interesting. And so I will try and limit it to like every other or once in a while when I find something interesting, but definitely I can look back at the first ones I did um, my my thinking has evolved significantly in sort of things, which you'd hope because more information's come out. And so I think I've been, I'd like to think I'm honest about what I think and I'm honest uh, or at least humble enough to recognize that I don't know the answers and so that I will, I mean, I've been wrong and I've corrected myself once before and other things I've not been. You've been wrong once. That's well. Once I was just totally wrong. Like I, wrong. I, but I mean, other things I've been wrong about. I'm your or, wife. You've been wrong more than once, but. But just that's like the last year, right? <laughs> um, but but when it comes to like uh, major things, I think you know I I always like like to say that there's a there's a realistic chance that I'm totally wrong and we don't really know when it comes to these things. So. This is the, um, the the real life sort of things that the dishwasher is singing to us here as we record in our studio. I left a very nice pause that you could have taken that out and edited that out, and instead you feel the need to talk about our dishwasher. That's interesting. Well, you know, this gives us gives people the recognition that you know our studio is small. It's <laughs> it's right next to the kitchen, next to the dishwasher. It looks just yes. like a kitchen, in fact. It, <laughs> Yes, yes. Surprisingly, you can almost, it's almost like you could see a waffle iron open <laughs> on the countertop. Um, and it also goes a little bit of uh, just the comparison you and me as podcasters on the fact that when I finish a show, I will edit it and make probably uh, easily a hundred edits, cutting out different sounds, 
uh, different ums. If I would say um, I take it out. If the dishwasher goes out, I take it off. And I would have the guests repeat what they said. For you, you just put it all in there. You just let it all be in there. It makes it authentic. It's raw. (laughs) Oh, so I'm not authentic and raw. Well, your show is very different. And so (laughs) your show has to have a level of polish that and um, (laughs) sensitivity that mine does not require. So, All right. Interesting. uh, Yeah. I I would also add in kind of back to your last question about um, when it comes to the show and things you've learned, I think my, my understanding of the healthcare system obviously is is deeper, but I think my outlook in, in what healthcare is going to be is much more optimistic than it was. I mean, when we, well, you know this obviously, but like when you talk about 2017, 2008, 2016, we're talking about the healthcare system. It's very sort of depressing. Like it's compensation can go down. Physicians have less autonomy. There's less they can do. And, and this show has, if nothing else, allow me to recognize that people are working outside. This is, they're finding ways to lead fulfill, fulfilling professional careers and to practice the way they want or to find ways to allow people who were cut out by the healthcare system because they couldn't afford it or they didn't have insurance and provide options for people. And so I, those things have, have been very encouraging. And so I'm much, much less pessimistic about things than I was in the past. Well, and for us personally, we do not have healthcare insurance this year. I feel like we are very likely some of the only uh, dual physician families in Grand Rapids that do not have health insurance. Every time I have to tell the hospital, we don't have health insurance because somebody has an appointment. i like, do you need to talk to billing? Do you want to talk to somebody who can help give you financial aid or get help paying your bill? Like, nope, we're fine. We just have chosen not to have health insurance. I use several different pharmacies now to try to get the best deal on GoodRx and it has been good learning experience, I would say, for us that way, just because I do have people coming into the office who don't have health insurance, and I totally can understand, like, usually they are in that position because somebody lost their job or something else is going on, so, and as opposed to us where we have just chosen not to, we didn't have that choice kind of taken away from us as others have, but it does give me a little more insight kind of going outside of the system that way. And I think it's also very ironic that like a year before I was negotiating with insurance companies <laughs> and then the next year I just dumped them. I don't even have them for my own insurance, let yeah. alone negotiating with them. So It's been a great learning experience in understanding because you're forced to understand the pitfalls of the, the system, right? I mean, like to try and find out how much something costs, is, it's almost impossible. Right, you can anticipate. Well, it's going to be expensive, but I don't know who I could even contact to find out how much that's that X-ray is going to cost. Well, this—that's a very good example. I think we can use this personal example. So, our son Peter is very small. All of our kids have been very small, but of course, this last year he was growing at even a decreased rate than he had been. So, the pediatrician wanted to send him to see a pediatric endocrinologist. So I and get a bone age. First of all, we're going to get a bone age. Uh, which is an x-ray of the hand, you know, to be able to see if his growth is very delayed. So we start talking about how much that's going to cost all of this. First of all, the bone age was going to be several hundred dollars getting it at the hospital because we have to get the x-ray plus we have to have it read. 
So instead, what we ended up doing is talking to your friend, Randy Level, my friend, Randy Level, and getting just a hand x-ray, which I think we paid, what, 50 bucks, I think? I wasn't there for the bill, but it was, yeah. I think we paid $50 for him to get an x-ray of the hand because I knew that when he went to see the pediatric endocrinologist, the endocrinologist himself was going to want to look at the film. So it really didn't matter what the radiologist was going to read it as because it was going to be reread at the doctor's appointment. So I thought, we can just take that, middle step out and not even have a radiologist look at it because otherwise it's going to be read twice. So we go in and see him and of course he does read it and it's a part of just his office visit charge which of course we get a discounted rate because we're paying cash and then he said we have to get some labs done I don't know how many you really want to get I've looked at this before this costs about $600 it was going to be through the University of Michigan system Mm -hmm. it was going to cost $600 I said I think I can get it cheaper through a different lab that our doctor has a has a partnership with and so he just gave me a list of all the medication or of all the labs that he wanted done and sure enough we got those labs done for $150 which was you know a fraction of the cost now Recently, this is now several weeks later, Peter, who also has migraine headaches, went in and saw his neurologist, and she said, we need to start on a new medication, but we need to check his platelets before, we need to check his liver enzymes before, and we need to see where those are. So she's going to write me a lab slip. And I said, no, no, I just got this done just a few weeks ago, so I was able to pull up the email of all the lab results and give them to her, and she goes, oh, this is fine, everything's done. But I think about how much money we saved just by thinking kind of outside the system because for sure, I would have just let all those things happen. Had we had regular insurance, I would have gone to the University of Michigan lab. Then we would have gone to the pediatric neurologist and I would have gone to the Spectrum Health lab, totally different lab, and just gotten them all done. I just would have done it. Yeah. And I wouldn't have thought about that, the fact that that really wasn't efficient use of anyone's funds like my funds personally or the insurance company's funds I it wouldn't have come to my head as it ended up anyway I just feel like it makes me think a lot more and it makes me a lot more efficient as a patient and as a physician as well oh no question and I think um yeah people treat insurance very much as if it's free I mean I think you know the push for Medicare for all is in many ways people thinking well it's sort of like my my insurance, but I don't have to have any copay at all is really what people think of Medicare yeah. for all, which is not what it would be. I mean, if it was, if it was truly like that, then it'd be astronomically expensive. But anyway, uh, even with copays and things, you still feel like things are free or you feel like at a minimum you're paying the discounted, you're paying a discounted rate. And so you're paying a copay on a discounted rate. So you're getting a good deal mm-hmm. when in reality you're getting shafted. And I think, you know, the, my experience with the Holter monitor, which I talked about in the show, a number of episodes in the 80s somewhere <laughs> yeah. where I talked about how I got the Holter monitor and it cost, it ended up costing me essentially the same whether I got it with or without insurance. It's only because they never came after to collect the remainder for me. Yeah. Right. Um, and so actually submitting through insurance was a bad idea. It was actually much, it would be, it was much more efficient to just pay cash directly. That's not always going to be the case, but it, the fact that it could ever be the case just shows you how bad the sort of the the system is and how flawed it is and I mean we all know this and mine was one tiny little episode I didn't have a hospital stay and all these you know you can imagine people with large hospitals they can 
really experience significant problems. And then, of course, you're captured if you're in a hospital, right? Well, and you're not always going to be an advocate for yourself. Like for right. me, yeah, might be right, I know... I know both of those physicians that Peter saw. I was able to really advocate for us and say, no, I can do it this way. I can get all the same information. I mean, everybody got all the information they wanted. We did not at all skimp on what my son needed. Like Everything was done right, which they would have cut back and not done everything. But I wanted everything done. I just wanted it done in an efficient manner. Yeah. And not everyone is going to be able to do that or feel like they even can. Who feels like they can say to their physician, hey, you know what? I, I really don't think I can do that right now. I can do it this other way and still get you the information you need. That's not going to happen often. Yeah, probably not. Well, and you know, this is somewhat a reflection of the patients you see, right? Like you're probably seeing patients who are all insurance-based patients for the most part or Medicaid, a mm-hmm. government payer. And so you're not going to see as many patients who are, have alternative ways of getting care, right? Because they're not going to come see you. Although I did recently have, so we're doing a lot of testing for COVID, a lot. <laughs> like I'm swabbing a lot of kids because if they have more than just a runny nose, they have a runny nose and a cough or a runny nose and a fever or a cough and a fever or something. If you have two symptoms, you have to be tested or you can't go back to school in Michigan. So I'm testing all the time. And of course, there's a huge backlog. So it's taking four or five days to get these tests back. So yeah. kids and are missing a whole week of school and parents actually have to stay home from work the entire week. If you follow the rules, if your if your child has a test pending, you need to stay home until that test is back. So I recently went outside. We have to do our swabs outside too, because we don't have negative pressure rooms to swab them inside. So I'm outside doing swabs in the rain. And Anyway, a mom said to me, you know, if you need that done, that's fine. But there is a place down the street that I can go and they'll do a rapid one and I can get the results much quicker. And which is great. I mean, that's great. If somebody can go somewhere else and get it done faster, wonderful. You can let me know the results. I mean, I feel terrible that it's taking this long. And if you can, you know, make those decisions for yourself and for your family and get it done in a more efficient way, great. Yeah. Well, you know, you, and that's, and that's where you have to be honest as a, as a clinician. And there's definitely a, an incentive from a revenue standpoint to capture all those tests mm-hmm. and do them all. And, you know, we can charge how much for getting the collectors test versus saying, well, you know, I, you know, I know my test is better, which it is than a nasal pharyngeal swab is much better results and more sensitive and specific than a rapid test. But you're like, what? It's going to take four days. And from a clinical standpoint, and from it's actually more useless for me to do this test than the other one, even though that one's less accurate, just because from a time, from turnaround time standpoint, you can actually use the information as opposed to getting the test and then finding out you know, four days later that whether you're positive or negative. Well, and honestly, our rates in the Grand Rapids area right now are quite low. Yeah. So my, you know... I just don't suspect it very high. And the ones that I have suspected, I probably would have been more insistent on doing ours. I mean, I can think back to one that I was pretty sure was going to be positive and was positive. And I would have not been happy had that mom chosen to do a less sensitive test. I think I would have dissuaded her a little bit only because my pre-test suspicion was quite high. But when my pre-test suspicion is really low anyway because they have a runny nose and a cough as do how many other kids in October in Michigan. You know, it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. And I think, I think in one of the episodes on SARS-CoV-2, I talked about 
pretest probability and how that changes your the, the sensitivity and specificity of tests, even though you can have a super sensitive test, if your pretest probability, meaning the likelihood you think someone actually is clinically going to have the disease, if it's really low, it doesn't even matter. You're more likely to get false and incorrect results than if you have a highest index of suspicion. So, mm -hmm. you know, someone who's like short of breath and coughing and stuff, you're like, this probably person could very likely have it. And the, the community rate is like 10%. The likelihood of you having COVID-19 is super high. So I think I can use any test or, or I don't even need a test probably. And, and I think that's something that's important to point out. And I, I did not know this, but like, you know, we always, they have numbers of people who have the flu every year. They say, you know, 10 million people have the flu or 15, I don't know how many it usually is, but that only a small percentage of those people actually had a flu test, right? I mean, mm -hmm. once you, once you see enough kids in once, your office, yeah. you're like, okay, well, it's just the flu. I've seen the flu's in our community. It's everywhere. Every kid who has like a runny nose, short breath, cough, whatever. It's just, I'm just going to say it's the flu. Maybe it's not sometimes, but it doesn't matter. Yes. Right? When, when flu rates get really high, it is good medicine to stop doing a test because the chances of you having a false negative and, and giving people false assurances that they do not have influenza become too high. So when you have 30% of your kids that you're seeing are positive for flu and you can get to the point where you're ba you can base it so much more on just what they look like when they come in. I mean, like this last year, I'm sure I had influenza. I'm sure I did. I was seeing kids all over with influenza. I had a girl with influenza that literally coughed in my face. That it was like in my eyes, in my mouth, just coughing right on me, which now I find hard to believe because now everybody has a mask, so that wouldn't even happen anymore. But at the time, of course, it didn't. And sure enough, a few days later, I have a fever. I feel miserable. I'm sure I have influenza. But, of course, I do not have health insurance at the time, so I'm not going to pay $100 or $130, I think, our PCR test was. I don't want to pay that to know, I mean, when I already know I have influenza. Yeah. Like, it makes no sense. And we started on Tamiflu and ended up feeling better because, of course, I gave it to you. So, right. um, That actually gets me to one of the questions I have for you is two years from now, so let's say that at this point, the COVID-19 pandemic is over or, you know, it's as I've talked to the show, it's going to be endemic where people are still going to be getting SARS-CoV-2 mm -hmm. infections. And, but at the point, this point, most people have had it or there'll be a vaccine. And so people that the severity of the disease will be much less. And so it's not, a, it won't be much of a concern. There'll still be the flu. I mean, we, as yeah. far as we know, there'll be flu for the rest of eternity, right? That is going to wave through as long as there are people meeting together, there'll be flu and move it traveling around the world. In that scenario, you mentioned this kid coughs on you. Do you think two, three years from now, flu season starts in October, November, that you and all the other docs and nurses are going to have gowns and sort of masks on or whatever? Or do you expect the patients to come in if they're sick? Do you expect them to put a mask on? I mean, how I, do you think that's going to work? I think both, actually. I, th I think that when patients come in and they are sick, we will ask them to put on a mask. We also are going to start a renovation in our office that half of our rooms are going to be negative pressure rooms. So all of those kids with respiratory illnesses will go into a negative pressure room. And then we will, I'm sure, be at least masked up. I don't know to the extent if we'll have gowns, gloves, masks, goggles, everything like we do now. But I can't imagine not being masked up actually now. I mean, I think about the fact that I, I mean, since this all started, I haven't like gotten sick at work. 
I'm a pediatrician. Like, we get sick at work because we see sick kids all the time. Well, it doesn't really happen anymore because we are so much more protected. So in some ways, it has changed how we will practice medicine forever in a good way. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what happens in schools because you can see kids. Uh, you can imagine, like, if a kid has a cold, you would still want them to go into school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But... Maybe now you say if you've got symptoms of some like a runny nose or something that you just started in school with a mask. And I just I wonder if that sort of is going to be more commonplace. People going to work, they're going to have you know you don't need to stay home necessarily because you have a cold, but you maybe going to work when you're wearing a mask and it'll be more accepted or or okay or just you know more well, sort of social custom that you're going to be wearing something if you're feeling a little bit under the weather, but not too sick to come into work. I well, don't know. I know we used to have a waiting room. We don't have a waiting room anymore at all. And it was always kind of a big joke that, you know, you could get sick in your pediatrician's waiting room. Like sometimes I would see kids the week after they had been in for a checkup and they came in and they were sick. And I thought, well, shoot, they probably got it in our waiting room. Well, you know, but they could have gotten it anywhere. Yeah, sure. But you just feel like... There are well kids, sick kids, kids coughing on toys and books and whatever, and they're all just, we're sitting together. So that that's why that will never go back either. We're not going to have a waiting room where we have people just kind of hanging out anymore. So we have learned a lot from this, and it is going to change the future even after. Because we know that for children... COVID-19 infection is really not bad for them. It's mainly bad for adults. I know there are a few kids that have gotten severely sick, but we have not seen it, and most pediatricians have not seen that. So, but And then you'll probably tell health has changed as well. Like you're going to have, people are going to be more comfortable not coming in and doing, oh, doing video, video visits mm-hmm, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's been, sure. and I feel like the much of the resistance to that on some level, was more a billing and an insurance thing than um, that. That's always been sort of like the, one of the limitations to it. And the reason that it wasn't implemented a lot of times by these primary care practices is, in some ways, because they just couldn't get compensated for it. And so, like, right? Yeah, and it is cumbersome to do because now you are talking on a video with them, and you still have to do all this computer charting, which you really can't do very much at the same time. Oh, sure. And you can't really do a physical, I mean, so much of it is based on kind of billing. So then, I don't know, it's complicated. A lot of physicians just didn't want to do it. I want to be able to touch the patient. I want to be able to see what's going on. And it just doesn't really feel like a good doctor-patient experience if I can't actually lay hands on the patient. So especially with older physicians, they're the ones that kind of would drag their feet a little bit more, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, as as <clears throat> bandwidth things change, you know, it's it's easier to do video stuff, streaming and stuff than it was five years ago, just by the simple fact that our internet connections are better everywhere, um, and the technology is better on your phones and tablets. I mean, if we were talking twenty years ago, and I said I'm going to watch you on your phone, that seems so much like the future, like actually seeing people when they're talking. Um, but I would think to that other point, I I do think there is there's absolutely an importance to having a a physical presence. Not having physical presence with people is not. It, you cannot make up for everything with the Zoom. You can't. Uh, no. no matter how many times you do it, it's not the same. It will never be the same to be in the physical presence of other people. I mean, it's a good substitute when you can have an uh, alternative. But we are all feeling this uh, in our interactions because it's funny because you you'll might 
you know, FaceTime someone for a bunch of times or Zoom. And then when you actually see them in person, it's like a totally different experience mm-hmm. and it feels a lot different. And so it's, it's something that I, I don't know, I'm sure psychologists will be studying this for quite a while, but you know, the, the COVID crazies and stuff that people are getting, but I think that's a real thing. And I think, you know, we're very social and it's important to have that physical presence and telehealth will never totally replace no, actually seeing no. people. And I know people have, they can't afford to have a doctor or whatever. And so they use that as an alternative but it's never going to totally replace the actual, you know, laying of hands. Mm-hmm. So what else do you feel like you want to talk about just going back over these hundred episodes? Is there anything else you feel like you just want to mention or, you know, not like? really. I think, I think we can sort of touch on everything that has been a fun journey for me. I would just highly recommend, I know I say at the beginning of shows or ends of shows oftentimes, but you know, if you have ideas for guests, a lot of the guests I get are people who are recommended to me. I mean, I've talked to people who I feel like I have no business talking to because you have a show and they'll respond and say, yeah, sure, I'll be on a show. And I've gotten books and I've, I've been able to meet great people, but it's all because of listeners and people who encourage me. You know, some people, you know, financially support me, but a lot of people would just encourage me like when I meet them in the in the hallways, people I know, people I don't know send emails. Those things are appreciated. And I think, you know, the more you interact and it's not like I get 10,000 emails a week and I can't get to all of them. So yeah, I, I don't get right. that many. And so it's nice getting a word of encouragement, either rating on the platform or just at, just sending something out saying you're interested in a certain thing about COVID-19. I just had someone else reach out to me and I found a good nice article and someone to look for someone for this. But these are the things that I think are really that, helpful to me because they, because oftentimes I'll touch on something and not realize, recognize that there's some, there's something a lot, some deeper mine of information there. And then someone will say, Oh, you could find more about that. I'm like, Oh yeah, that's a good idea. And that's, that's what oftentimes happens with the show. It's like kind of, it's very spontaneous, which is why for your show, where you talk to grieving parents, you can schedule three months out in advance and it's pretty easy for you because it's a similar sort of experience. Whereas I'm just doing kind of random stuff. This is my excuse for not booking <laughs> things weeks advance. Uh, but I think it's, it, that's kind of fun for me. That's just sort of, it is kind of like a, not random, but it's certainly a more variety, I guess, to the show. Well, I like that idea of just sending a question. It doesn't have to be like, I, this, I want you to cover this specific topic, or it'd be great if you'd interview this specific person. It's just, if you have this question, like, I just have this question. I just don't know. What do you know about this? How could you help me with this? I mean, I get some of those too. And then it just makes you think a little bit outside the box, something you would never have thought about before being a subject. Well, I appreciate you guest hosting today. I know that was... I appreciate you agreeing to be on your own show. (laughs) (laughs) So thanks. Uh, I was happy to be a guest host. I will certainly do it again. Well, you've certainly, you've definitely, you're the best guest host we've had on the show. Since I'm the only guest host you've ever had on the show, I appreciate that. But I'm also the worst guest you guest host you've ever had on the show well now that's just a half empty sort of thing to say (laughs) stay half full all right thank you so much thanks thanks for listening to the paradox if you like what the doc is doing please subscribe and leave a review on itunes or stitcher and share the show with your friends become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox show notes can be found at theparadox.com. paradox.com